0: Well, it seems like just yesterday that our guest was cutting his teeth in the European Peloton as one of the youngest riders in the Peloton. Fast forward 13 years and he's embarking on yet another season in the Peloton for Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale as one of the oldest riders on the team. Jens, you got to spend time with him recently. What
1: were your takeaways? that he is really having a lot of knowledge and interest about equipment, technology, and the science behind our sport. And um, yeah, he is still one of the exotic parts of the team. You know, as an American in a French team, you are still considered to be a little bit exotic.
0: So there we go. Our guest today on Bobby and Jens. Hello, and welcome, Larry Warboss, to Bobby and Jens.
2: Thanks, Gus. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Well, you know, thanks for joining us. You're straight off your first team camp of the 2024 season down there in Spain. But before we get to that, there's something a little bit more important, at least over here in the U.S., that I want to talk to you about. You went to the University of Michigan. And for those of you that don't know... The Wolverines won the college national championship, thirty-four to thirteen, over Washington a couple weeks ago. Larry, did you just roll into your training camp sporting sportin a lot of the maize and maize
2: and blue? I actually didn't. I mean, we do have dark blue, uh, like you know, sweatshirts and stuff on the team. So I, I definitely had the blue, but I didn't have any maize with me. I, I, I should have. Uh, probably not the best uh, best Michigan fan, but yeah was a bit jealous because a lot of my friends actually went to the game, so that was pretty cool.
1: So would you then, if, uh, when you back home and it happens, would you then rather go to your Michigan team, Bobby just talked about, or would you go, nah, i just going to go to the Super Bowl straight away? <laughs> what would you choose? Your little home <laughs> team having a beer with your friends, or take the $1,000 ticket
2: and go to the Super Bowl? I have to say uh, college football games are really fun, and going to Michigan, uh, yeah, it's really a big thing there, so... Um, I really enjoy, yeah, game day, game day weekend. So, uh, I'm sure the Super Bowl would be an experience, but, uh, yeah, going to college game day is pretty sweet,
0: man. I, I, I remember being on French teams. Uh, I used to wear baseball hats all the time and that didn't really go over too well with the French teams. You remember that Yenzi, they, you know, (laughs) Roger Leger would always, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But man, if there was a, if there was a time to sport a big M hat or t-shirt, that was the time to do it. You should have, Should have taken full advantage of that old Larry, but, um, okay. So, so fresh off the first training camp of the year, uh, January training camps have a different feel to it, right? It it feels like it's homework check time. Um, walking into the the camp this year, how did the first team camp go for you down in, down in Spain?
2: Yeah. So our first team camp was like, um, in December. So that was like, Yeah, I guess just all getting back together. Well, actually, we had three team camps. We had one in November where we did the team presentation. You get your equipment. You do all the kit fitting. And then um, we had probably just 10 days at home. And then we did the December camp. So that's like, you know, more just like, okay, getting back into the swing of things. More endurance focused. Um, But, yeah, we did some pretty big blocks at that camp. Um, And then... January camp, which I just got back from. That's like more, you know, intense and uh, really putting on the finishing touches for the races. So, especially as you know, you know the French teams, they uh, really like to come in hot for Marciez and uh, besage and and all those races. So, uh, you know, they're really important for for our team. And uh, yeah, so and now you know, I mean, even. I mean, yeah. I mean, there was down under and then you had uh, even last weekend, there were the two races in Spain. So a few guys stayed longer and then did those races. So yeah, it's pretty much just uh, full gas. It's pretty funny because, you know, I start in Provence, which is the 8th of February, but that's like late uh, for my team, which is pretty crazy, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, times, uh, times are changing a bit. So
1: where would your race program take you from there? Staying with the French racers, uh, Pyrenees, or switching to the Tirreno Adriatico site and Milan Sanremo? What's your program for the next, let's say, weeks or or months even?
2: Yeah, so I do pretty much most of um, February around here. So I do Provence, then I do, now it's called Classic VAR. It's a one-day race. Um, And then Tour of Al-Maritime. So that's cool, because that's like, right right around uh, Nice and that area, so it's pretty cool home race. Then I do Drome Classic, so again, not too far, and Ligualia. So pretty much all the first month, I just can drive to every race, which is pretty sweet. Um, I like to be able to do that because you can just, yeah, sync up the training and the racing and uh, your build at the start of the year. And then I have um, a little break after that, and then I do San Remo, Catalonia, um before going to an altitude camp for the Giro and then go straight from the altitude camp to tour the Alps and then the Giro. So uh see so yeah, that's sort of like the big target for the first part of the year. So so yeah, a little bit lighter schedule than I've had in the past, but uh I'm happy with that.
0: Yeah, nothing wrong with starting off with some some training blocks with some races peppered in there. That's for sure and yeah, that's so nice being able to drive to those races in one of the big big benefits of living down on the Côte d'Azur is it's one of the warmest places in in Europe so they they do start a lot of the the season uh you know the season races down there um does the team feel a little different this year I mean you had big riders like Greg Van Evermet, Mickey Shar, Mikael Scharrel all retire at the end of 2023 you had some guys leave you guys had some guy you had some guys come in like Sam Bennett Edvald Bosenhagen, it seemed like he got a last, uh, last minute call up to the ride, uh, to the team. I'm sorry. And then, of course, Tour de France stage winner Victor Lafay joined the team. How are those guys, you know, how is the, the integration of, of those new guys after having staples like Greg and, and Michael and uh, Mickey around for so long?
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I'm actually glad that they signed Edvald because uh, if they didn't sign him, I was tied for oldest guy on the team with uh, Sam and Oliver and So, uh, so yeah, that I was like, oof, that's that's pretty crazy to be 33 and the oldest guy on the team. Um, but yeah, luckily, uh, last minute call, they signed Edvald. Uh, so he, you know, he got us by like three four years. So so that's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, it's it's pretty cool. Um, you know while we lost some experience with Greg and Mickey uh, and Mika um, we actually signed yeah I would say some really great and also experienced riders this year so that's pretty cool because over the last years every you know batch of signings we had were all pretty much neo pros so for the last two years they signed maybe five neo pros each year which you know I mean that's sort of the trend in cycling now you sign all the young guys but it was hard because each time we lost, you know, like five experienced guys or something. So um, yeah, it kind of, it kind of changed the dynamic of the team. And um, luckily this year, while we lost some, you know, really experienced guys and a big champion like Greg and, you know, great teammate like Mika and Mickey. Um, yeah, we got, we got some really good guys, you know, I mean, Sam Bennett, obviously green jersey, won a bunch of stages in the tour. Victor LeFay was, you know, in the first weekend of the tour, probably one of the yeah, hottest prospects. And then, uh, you know, we signed a really good time trialist in Bruno Armirai, uh, who came from FDJ and then, yeah, Dries de Bont, solid rider. You know, we just signed like a lot of, uh, really solid guys. Yeah. Ed vault. Um, so it's cool. You know, I think, uh, it also brought like a little more international dynamic to the team because I think five of the, um, seven new riders are international riders. So, so that's cool. So that's the news on the rider's side, but
1: there's also news on the tech side, right? With the arrival of Decathlon as an extra sponsor, which boosts the resources for the team, that's always welcome, but you also had to get used to a brand new bike. We had a chance to talk about it a few days ago, but maybe you can repeat some of that for our listeners, because it was pretty interesting, and you did seem to know more or less everything about how (laughs) that bike was, like from the idea of that bike to the finished product, so... Fill us in a little bit, please.
2: Yeah, for sure. As Bobby knows, I'm pretty passionate about my uh, equipment and uh, technology and everything. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess especially if there are, you know, a lot of U.S. listeners, most people wouldn't have heard of Van Riesel or even potentially Decathlon. Um, so Decathlon is it's a really big sporting store. Um, it's a sporting goods store. It's based out of France, but it's an international store. Um, so it's all over the world. Um, it's big in Asia. It's really big all over Europe. And, um, yeah, they're like trying to come into the U S as well now. Um, so, so yeah, they, they got, they came maybe a couple years ago, but it didn't totally pan out. And now they're trying to sort of slowly work their way back into the market. But, yeah, I guess for people who are in the U S it's something like a Dick's sporting goods, MC sports kind of thing. Um, but it's like, I guess I would say it's very good value. Um, so, you know, low prices for pretty good stuff. Um, so, you know, I guess if I go camping, something like that, I buy all my sporting goods at decathlon. Um, but up until now, you would say maybe you wouldn't buy a bike there but that that's changing now so you know it's like they were the leader in um i guess beginners they were the leader in intermediates and across almost all uh you know i guess all different sports but what they found was as soon as their clientele uh progressed to advanced level they they lose the they lose the the client and um, in their whole presentation to us actually was pretty funny because they had a a photo of tom pidcock as a kid riding a decathlon bike you know and then they're like you know we want to be able to keep these kids you know to yeah when they become a pro or something and so yeah their whole push in cycling and other sports is to really develop that uh highest level equipment and so that's what they did with van ryzel their bike brand um They've been working on this new bike that we're riding now. It's called the RCR. Um, they've been working on it for three years. And, yeah, it's, it's a huge company. You know, I, I would say the engineers, uh, they had the budget that they needed. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Um, and one thing that I thought was pretty awesome was uh, they actually, they bought all 18 bikes of the world tour, <clears throat> and they tested all of them. And uh, they went to the wind tunnel. They tested all 18 bikes, and then they essentially just made a chart, you know, from the fastest to the slowest. And they said, we want to build a bike that's 6.8 kilos, so the weight limit, so 14.8 pounds or whatever that is, uh, with pedals in a size medium that's in the five most aero bikes in the world tour. So, yeah, I think I told you Jens, but they, I think they did something like 19 different, um, you know, Uh, editions or whatever of this frame till they got to the one uh, that they were happy with and so yeah it's uh it's an all-around bike so it's not just a purely aero bike it's a you know lightweight aero bike kind of all-arounder like we're seeing a lot on the market and uh yeah it's awesome so and then the cool thing is you know they said we'll get to sort of we won't have exclusive contracts with any equipment or you know component supplier and essentially, we can revisit every single year with whatever's the fastest. So, you know, we're on Continental now, but if next year a different tire brand's faster, we can switch tires. Uh, you know, we're on Shimano because everyone decided that they thought that was the best. Uh, you know, so it's pretty cool. It's, uh, they're really, really looking towards performance, and that's, yeah, big, big, uh, big thing for us. So, so it's pretty cool.
0: Well, that that's not the only big change. I mean, for years now, AG2R La Mondial or AG2R uh, Citroën had a very unique kit highlighted by brown shorts. I mean, love them or hate them, that was your image, right? It was very easy to pick yeah. you guys out in the peloton. Uh, but now with Decathlon AG2R La Mondial, you've moved to more of that traditional white and blue jersey with black shorts you know the white and blue very very um associated with the colors of decathlon um yeah what did you think about the brown shorts i mean that that's up for d- debate like like i said you either love them or hate them um wh- what is your your uh your opinion on that kit compared to the new one
2: i actually have to say i really liked the brown shorts because it was just different you know i mean we were the only people with brown shorts and and yeah I mean, it's good also because like uh, they didn't ever look dirty, you know, (laughs) they just looked or they look dirty all the time, depending on uh, how you look at it. But uh, but yeah, Um, I don't know. I thought it was a cool kit. You know, it was kind of like iconic and classic uh, in cycling. So I I enjoyed having those brown shorts. But uh, I mean, black is super classy. And I definitely I have to say uh, it looks looks classy. The new kit with black shorts. I, I like that, too i'm not i'm not too disappointed to be honest but all
1: righty here's another question where we require an honest answer how much of your shopping actually happens in decathlon now since the start of january (laughs) you know (laughs) come on let let us know
2: yeah i've been meaning to go there this week uh, to get a few different things um but honestly i've been training too hard so i've been too tired to actually leave the house so (laughs) i i've just stayed home i haven't been to decathlon yet but uh I'm sure I will help subsidize my paycheck uh, at certain points throughout the year.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully you got some like coupon discount code or something like that because uh, I, I do remember Jens, when we used to do those training camps and we needed you know gear or when we you know climbed Kilimanjaro. Like I didn't have any of that stuff. You go to Decathlon, you can pretty much find anything, but the kitchen and the kitchen sink included. You know, it's uh, a pretty cool, pretty cool store. Definitely remember getting some kids' bikes there, some kids' helmets, some rollerblades to uh, cruise around on the Promenade des Anglais there in Nice back in the day. But um, Larry, you know, you've been on this French team or French teams now for what, going on your sixth year? Um, Yeah. Jens and I both had that opportunity of trying to fit into that new, kind of unique, much more historical, classic, you know. We do things the way we do them because that's the way we've done them for a long time. But I, I'm wondering for you, you know, being younger than us and you, you just kind of shocked me when you said earlier that you were at risk of being the oldest guy on the team. Because it just seems like when did that happen? Right. Like the last yeah. time I remember you were like, you know, a young little neo Pro on, on team BMC racing. But what are some of the challenges that you and your generation, uh, English speakers in general, have to deal with when when riding for a French team?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> speaking French is, is, yeah, it's a big barrier for a lot of guys. So, um, you know, when I joined the team, um, they're like, oh, you, you know, you don't need to learn French. Don't worry. But I was like, ah, I think it's probably good if I do. And um, so, yeah, at the time I was living in Villefranche-sur-Mer just next to Nice. And yeah, there was this really good immersion school there. So my off-season, I signed up for a month-long French immersion. Um, And I went, yeah, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. every single day. That was my entire off-season the year before I came to the team. And uh, yeah, it gave me a good base that helped me learn once I really got to the team. So I I will say, like, the first six months were extremely difficult. Um, Because yeah, I guess, you know, as you guys both probably know also, it's like, when you just learn a foreign language and you're really, it it requires a ton of concentration to just communicate, to try to understand, to, to, yeah, to just be in that environment. And so you're training, so you're already tired from all the training that you're doing. And then just on top of that, like your brain is just working on overdrive the whole rest of the day, you know, or in the races, you know, you're trying to understand what's happening in the radio while, Well, you're, you know, you're at 180 beats a minute, like, uh, it's, uh, it's really, it's a challenge, so the first six months, I mean, every race, every training camp, I was really, I was exhausted, and I think it's because, like, yeah, my, my brain was running as fast as, you know, my, my body, Um, and yeah, so that was, that was a challenge, Um, I, I struggled a bit the first six months, but then, I don't know, it was something like, maybe I went back for nationals or something. I had this time in the US and then I came back and all of a sudden it was like, boom, it just like clicked. And then all of a sudden I, I could speak French without really thinking too much. And, uh, and yeah, I, I don't know, it became a lot easier from there. But, but the six, first six months were really difficult. Here's a little example of uh, my
1: first uh, time in France. I wanted to ask him how his legs are, but I actually asked how the ham is. So instead of asking, <laughs> hey, le jambe, ça va I went, hey, <laughs> yeah. le jambon, ça va? And he looked at me like, well, what jambon? What ham are you talking about? And I actually wanted to say jambe, like let. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. man. After we oh, cleared funny. it up, we laughed at it for a week or so. But um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. just normally. I, I really had wanted to believe they laughed with me and not about me, <laughs> right? The laugh yeah, yeah. Me. Yeah. They laughed together with me. he gave me some crap. But my, my, my guys were good. They helped me. They corrected me in a nice way. So it, it was a good learning process there. Hey, um, we just talked about you, um, being 33 years old, Larry. Um, have you seen it all? What would surprise you in a coming season? Or you go, nah, I've seen that, nah, done that, nah, made it.
2: Yeah, I know. I mean, I wouldn't say I've seen it all, but uh, <clears throat> I guess I mean I have done quite a lot of races, uh, and I've yeah been around the block a few times now. But <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know what I could say uh, would surprise me this year um you know I think every year cycling surprises me um just you know it's like everyone gets so much more professional and then everyone gets faster you know I mean myself included the only problem is everyone gets uh faster at the same rate you know (laughs) so every year I progress but every year the level of peloton progresses so I pretty much stay around the same same spot but um but yeah I think uh I think we'll keep seeing more and more development, you know, like I think I told you, Jens, uh, at the training camp, and, you know, you asked me about the nutrition, I think that's really a huge, huge change and huge shift we've seen, Um, you know, it's just, we're extremely calculated with all the nutrition stuff, Um, and I think that's, you know, contributing to the higher speeds of the Peloton is, like, now everyone's super well fueled rather than just, you know, having a bar when you're hungry every now and then uh, on the bike. And, you know, there's all these little details that uh, are changing that that are making a big difference. So, so I don't know. Maybe there's, uh, I think if, yeah, I'm sure there'll be something that'll surprise me, uh, but I don't know what it is yet. We'll be right back after this short break.
1: Now. Back to our chat with Larry.
0: Larry, you were a little bit, well, a lot ahead of your time on one of the past teams that you rode for. Um, that was the Aqua Blue, uh, Aqua Blue Sport, if I remember correctly, yeah. or if my notes yeah. uh, chime in. And I remember, you know, you you were talking about. You know, this new tech, you know, you, you guys were some of the first, uh, I think the first team that had disc brake bikes, you were racing with a one by, which was like unheard of. And I know that you weren't the biggest fan of it because maybe the, that, the, the, um, it it wasn't quite ready yet. Right. But like, yeah. you're new, you're, you've been new to all these things, you know, tubeless tires. I remember, you know, when you won the nationals, you had tubeless tires. Um, you know, what, other sort of technical advances, you know, cause you used it right at the beginning and now, you know, Jumbo Visma and Jonas Venego are using one buys in, in the Tour de France with tubeless tires, the whole nine yards. What, what else is out there that you have your eye on? That's going to be somewhat new to, you know, the technical aspect of, of cycling, making you guys go even faster.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. You know what, you know what I think will be sort of like the next area of progression will be, um, I would say doing a lot of aerodynamic testing in terms of road bike positions. So, you know, now it's like, okay, before I'm sure like in your guys era, I mean, you probably went to the wind tunnel a couple times, but that was like, you know, I mean, you guys are like way ahead of the times going to the wind tunnel back then. Right. You know, where it's like, now it's like pretty universal, almost every single... Well, no, not almost. I'm pretty sure every single team is going to the wind tunnel. Uh, you know, every team's doing track testing. Every team's dialing in <clears throat> all these details. But, you know, I would say the one place that hasn't been... So that that's for the time trial bike, sorry. You know, so going to the wind tunnel, doing track testing, all this on the TT bike, you know. So now, I mean, if you want to be one of the best in the time trial, I mean you essentially have to be a science project, you know, I mean, you just have to dial in and optimize every single piece of material on your bike. Um, and then all as well, I mean, the position is probably 70% of that. So, you know, you have to just test, 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 test. So yeah, not all teams have that budget or want to invest that into that, but that's definitely, you know, a big thing. But the one thing teams haven't totally explored some people are doing it i know there are some riders who have tested a bit with their road bikes on the track etc but um i would say the next thing we're going to start seeing a lot of is guys doing track testing or wind tunnel testing on their road bikes but like i mean just across the board i think everyone will start doing that soon um so yeah it's just another another thing but uh but i think that'll make a big difference if uh, not, I just mentioned. I remember Victor Campagnolo. He seemed
1: to be a bit of a pioneer. He had a very narrow handlebars, and I think he was one of the first ones also to have his brake levers pointing inward, so he would get smaller. So maybe yeah, have a quick word with him and see what he thinks about it. Hey, um, riding fast on a bike, training also seems to be an important part still. Back in my days, I would do in my later career about thirty-five thousand kilometers per year—fifteen thousand racing, more or less, and twenty thousand training. Is that about the volume you guys do these days, or you go shorter but more intensity with this with
2: the, the riding? I would say no. I would say that's actually pretty bang on. You know, I would say, yeah, most guys are somewhere in the range of yeah, probably thirty-two to thirty-seven thousand or something. So you know, like you know, I think it's funny. I was listening to a podcast, uh, maybe even, I don't know, in the last couple of days. And they were talking about that is that actually like in terms of general volume, it hasn't really changed that much. I think it's just how we acquire that volume. So, you know, I think, uh, you guys used to race probably way more than we do now. Okay. Last year I was like, I was the third, I had maybe the third most race days or something. So I did maybe almost 90 race days last year, but in your guys' day, you probably regularly did over a hundred sometimes now. Um, absolutely. So that yeah, that's definitely now there's like a UCI rule that says uh you can't do more than eighty or eighty five. I mean, no 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 one contacted me last year when I went over that number, but uh <laughs> but uh yeah. Um <clears throat> so yeah, I would say most teams, you know, most riders wouldn't even go over 70 75 now you know i would say 70 would be a pretty standard number and you know a lot of the big teams now the big leaders they're doing they wouldn't be doing a whole lot more than 50 i would say so um that's been a huge change so just you know now a lot more time focused on the training and you know you see a guy like Roglic, he released a schedule and he does maybe like three stage races or something before the tour de france something like 21 days of racing and then he does the tour and, you know, I think part of that is everyone's so optimized with training, everything like that, is that, like, you know, he doesn't want to lose. If he goes and does four one-day races, you know, that's maybe – if you take a travel day on each side, uh, you know, that can be up to, like, eight days of training lost. Uh, so that's, that's you know, massive um, if you're trying to win the Tour de France, right? So, you know, I think it's, like, really now people are – trying to dial in those fine details and, and really optimize, yeah, those last percentages. Well, so
1: what we're trying to say, Bobby, one second. Uh, what we're trying to say is, these days, riders can train much better than in races. Back in our days, Bobby, would go, now nah, you start with Route du Sud, then you go to the Dauphiné, and then the Tour de France. Small race, medium size race, big race. That doesn't happen anymore today, right?
2: No, that's true, that's true. Now it's like... I mean, if you're one of the leaders, you'd never... You you almost wouldn't do a small race, you know? Okay, I mean, occasionally, yes, um, you know, Vingegaard, maybe he starts in, like, this Grand Camino race and things like that. But I would say now it's, like, altitude, big race, Tour de France or something. You know, it's, like, now, you know, a lot of these guys are doing two or three three three-week altitude camps leading up to the Tour uh, or a Grand Tour. And so, yeah, it's a lot of time... Training, 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 and I think you know most teams think that uh, now training is the best training and not racing uh, like they used to say. so yeah but Larry, knowing you
0: as well as I do, um, I consider you one of the most uh, one of the more intelligent bike racers out there. you know you you always kind of want to understand what you're doing and and while you're doing it. But talking about that fine detail, uh, recently you posted on Instagram, doing a self-administered lactate protocol test. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, is that something that you decided to do? Is this what, what everyone is doing nowadays? Tell us and our listeners a little bit about you, what you went through on the home trainer, pricking your, pricking your fingers so many times throughout that, uh, that test you did. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm actually going to do one tomorrow. But um, So, no, I mean, that's not something that everyone's doing. Um, that's very few people. But there are some other guys who are definitely now taking their own lactate. So, um, I know Theo Gagan he does that quite a bit. And then I think pretty much all the guys on um, uh, UAE are also, you know, they'll <clears throat> not necessarily do a lactate test themselves, but, like, you know, they'll be going and doing, um, you know, efforts, say, like, yeah, they're really big in a high zone two on UAE. So they'll do these high zone two efforts. They'll do, you know, a big block and then, you know, at maybe a certain watt per kilo or something. And then they test the lactate to see, you know, sort of if they're in the right zone. So it's something that's slowly coming into the sport. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was something actually I, I kind of, I had a friend who was like, oh, you should get, you know, a lactate meter. I think that's something that could really help you. This was like three years ago. So I bought one and then I just left it for like a year. I didn't touch it. And I, I don't know why I just bought it because my friend said, oh, it's a good idea. He's, he's not a cyclist, but um, he, he's a runner and a f- exercise physiologist. And then I started to follow um, the Norwegian triathletes, which obviously, you know, I know you work with Super Sapiens and, you know, Super Sapiens is a sponsor of those guys. And I think they're really on the cutting edge. So I started to learn sort of a bit about their method. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So then I just sort of started to take my lactate through different efforts just to sort of learn a bit about it and, you know, see how it worked. And then <clears throat> this year um, we decided to sort of just do a uh, regular lactate testing. So, um, you know, like maybe once a month or something and I do it in on the trainer just to like keep it in a controlled environment um, so I can really see the progression, you know, so it's like, you can keep the temperature the same, you can keep everything exactly the same. Whereas, you know, if you're on the road, if it's, you know, uh, I mean, if it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 80 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, that can change everything. Um, so, so, you know, it's like if you're doing it inside every time, it keeps everything constant and then you can really see the progression. Even if the trainer isn't necessarily the road, um, you can sort of see the progression over the course of the year and whether the training we're doing is moving in the right direction.
1: So, so yeah, now sorry, that was um a
2: long answer. <laughs> I like it. Oh good, and it was super interesting.
1: Um so how experienced or how much knowledge you have if your little device says three point five, whatever millimole per liter, or seven point five, or twelve point eight, do you know what that means? And can you adjust your training? Or your coach has to read all your files and he tells you what to do?
2: No, so I know sort of like the general thing that I'm shooting for. So for example, today I did um I did kind of like some fat max efforts. So I did, you know, a lot of blocks just around my fat max. Um, and then I'd take my lactate at the end. Oh, just once I took my lactate at the end, just to make sure that I was sort of in the right zone. So, you know, I did a long block, um, you know, a bit over 300 watts. And I stopped at the top of the climb, took my lactate, and it was like 1.3 millimoles. So I was like, okay, good. You know, I'm like, bang on where I want to be. So if that was like three point something, I know, okay, well, I was definitely pushing too hard. Do you really need a lactate meter to tell you that? Not exactly. Because what I would say is almost every single time that I feel like I'm going too hard, and then I take the lactate, it's too high, you know? So it's like, If I feel that I'm within myself and I take the lactate, it's right where it needs to be. So it's kind of just confirming what you actually feel. So, um, yeah, I guess it kind of can get you a bit more in touch with your sensations. But I would say your sensations are extremely accurate. So if you feel like you're going too hard, you're probably going too hard. Um, So, yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I work for a company and um, one of the things, questions that we get quite often is what's next, you know, continuous glucose monitoring, which obviously isn't legal, UCI legal in the races, but some guys are using it in the off season to dial in their training. But um, yeah, the, the whole lure of continuous lactate monitoring um, that would, that would be super cool. I think we're still a, yeah, far away from that, but it would be, it would, it would definitely revolutionize the, the sport in my opinion. Um, but man, one thing, another thing that I need to ask you about is, you know, know you quite well, you and your family get together around holiday time and you go to Hawaii and you've always been really good at finding that balance between doing what you need to do and then spending time with your family. You know, this is one of the few times that you get to do that with everyone there. But um, you did something pretty interesting this time, which you also documented on Instagram. So I had to dive into your Strava file and take a look at it. Uh, you did the Strava segment that puts the chill down pretty much anyone's spine. Uh, <laughs> the, the dreaded Mauna Kea segment, which goes up to forty. 40- 207 meters, which is 13,800 feet from the beach to the top of the volcano. It took you four hours, 59 minutes and four seconds, which (laughs) gave you the KOM on that. Um, And I was pretty amazed when I looked at how how many people actually would do this, but there was quite a few. Um, Tell us a little bit about this experience. And was this a planned assault on this effort? Or on this Strava segment, or did you just wake up one day and say, hey, I need to do, go out and do a five-hour climb, so I'm going to go up Mauna Kea?
2: Uh, it was like a combo of things. So before I went, I was like, ah, you know, this time I actually want to do Mauna Kea because I'd never done it before because every time I was like, oh, that's just way too hard. You know, like I, I don't really feel like riding up a five-hour climb. Uh And so, yeah, it was probably – It was probably my fifth time in Hawaii, and I was like, well, if I still haven't done it, I mean, I don't know how many times I'm going to come back here. I I need to do it at least once. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. But I didn't know if I was going to try for the KOM or whatever. And then I was doing some some training around the days before, and then I saw, like, the power that Phil did. And I was like, you know what? I think actually, like, I could maybe take this if I – just go like a little bit harder than one of my endurance days. So I was like, okay, I was supposed to do like an endurance day where I was pushing a bit. And then I was like, okay. I asked my coach, I was like, ah, you know, is it cool? Like I just try for this KOM. And he's like, yeah, sure. So I was like, okay, if I do like a bit of zone three and then endurance, maybe I can take it. But I mean, even doing that for like five hours, this is like, it's pretty solid. So, so I was like, okay, I just really, yeah, I just essentially every time it was like steeper, I I I'd do like, you know, zone three. And every time it was flatter, I'd sort of back down to just like normal endurance. Uh, and, you know, I didn't stop to pee. I kind of peed off the bike on the one flat section, uh, falls down, falls flat downhill. And then, and then, you know, the other thing was, is like, <clears throat> um, there's like this gravel section, uh, and it used to be that anyone could drive to the top, but now you need, um, like a four by four, um, or four wheel drive to go to the top. And we only had like a a minivan, uh, that our our family rented. So I was like, I just asked my dad, I was like, look, I don't want you to have to follow me the whole day while you're on vacation. So like, can you just meet me at like the Rangers station, which was at like 9,000 feet, 3,200 meters or something. And, uh, I was like, can you just meet me, give me like fresh bottles and stuff. And then, you know, maybe drive me back down after. So, So my dad, I was like, it'll take me about like a little over three hours to get there. So my dad met me there and I I took like a down jacket just in case because I was going to be hot. I put like a down jacket in my jersey, took new bottles, took a bag of Haribo and then just uh, went on my way again. But what I didn't realize is that you're actually supposed to like register at the ranger station to check in. And you're even supposed to wait there for 30 minutes to acclimatize to the altitude before you go all the way up. Anyway, there was this ranger talking to like some other car, checking them. And I just, you know, blew through, but I was like, Oh sweet. The guy didn't see me. I'm go, I'm golden. And so then I'm riding. And then this guy drives up, uh, you know, in his SUV and he's like, you gotta go back. You gotta go back. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, like, uh, I'm trying to break the record of this climb. He's like, you've got to sign in, you know? And I was like, oh, can my dad sign me in? And he's like, fine okay what's your dad look like you know <laughs> and, and and i was like ah oh, you know he has a michigan hat on yeah he, he he wears amazing blue um you know he's driving this minivan whatever he's like okay just go so the guy let me go anyway end up hitting this dirt section which is super hard and uh at one point i even had to walk because it was so sandy And uh, yeah, you just, I couldn't get any traction. Anyway, I thought, well, this is finished. You know, there's no chance I'm getting this. And then I was able to get back on the bike. I probably walked for like five minutes. And then all of a sudden it just turned back to pavement, which somehow I missed in the whole thing. I thought it was dirt all the way to the top, but it's like 10K of dirt and then 5K of pavement. So the last 5K were pavement. And all of a sudden I realized like, my Strava Live segment didn't work, but I knew I was somewhere around the time, and I was like, okay, well, I'm somewhere within a few minutes, so I might as well just, you know, push a bit hard the last kilometer, just just in case I'm close, you know? So, the last kilometer, I just kind of pushed harder, and I did a little splint in the last, sprint in the last couple hundred meters, and I could see on the, the, the Strava Live segment that I literally, I think I passed Phil in the last 200 meters and then got the, got the KOM, so... So yeah, but I didn't know until after I went to the car. I I went back to the car, uploaded the file, and then saw. Oh yeah, I got it. So so I was like, wow, fifteen seconds is pretty crazy. It was almost like I was trolling him, but it was literally just uh, luck. But yeah, so pretty funny. That's gotta be one of the longest Strava
1: sections ever. And just for your info, I was up there Uh, with my wife, nineteen ninety four, in an open convertible Ford Mustang. Our first holiday together. We just dated for a few months and I had some racing. The Outrigger Tour of Hawaii in October, maybe 94. And I organized a ticket for my wife to come and we went up there and opened convertible Ford Mustang. Best holiday ever. But anyway, back to you. Um, let's go to the other side of the weather extremes from Hawaii. You're born in Traverse City. That is on Lake Michigan, right? Yeah. yeah. So for our viewers in or listeners in Europe, that is far further north <laughs> than some yeah. parts of Canada. And yeah. Canada is famous for cold winters. So how, in the name of God, did you pick cycling in a place where you might have six months of snow and winter?
2: Yeah, I... Um... I actually got into it through ski racing. So I used to ski race when I was a kid. And then, um, our ski club did these mountain bike camps every summer. So yeah, I started, uh, started out ski racing. And then when I was, yeah, maybe about like 12, 13 years old, I did these mountain bike camps really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed it. And there's a big mountain bike race in Traverse city every year called the Iceman Cometh. And there's something like 5,000 people do this race. Um, so I did, did that race. Um, really enjoyed it. And a friend of I, who I skied with, <clears throat> he mountain bike raced a lot. So he asked me to just join him the next year. And I was like, okay, cool. sounds good. So got into mountain bike racing like that. And then when I was 15, 16 years old, I switched to the road. Um, and I just liked how it was a more social, um, yeah, there was a more of a social aspect to it. And yeah, I got lucky. I, I kind of had like a mentor back home who was be- into racing and he took me under his wing and kind of just slowly, slowly chipped along, uh, joined the national team and progressed like that. So um, yeah, it was it was a long process, but I was pretty lucky to have good people around me the whole way.
0: Um, Jens, I don't know if I've told you this before, but uh, Larry was, used to come down here to Greenville, South Carolina and stay with, with the Hincapie family and, and do some training. And it was one of the first years that I was working for BMC and I was kind of looking after Larry. And started paying attention to like his little GPS coordinates. And I was like, what the hell are you doing down in South Carolina? And I thought South Carolina was flat. And like on a normal ride, you're pulling, you know, 12 to 1500 meters of elevation. Like, where the hell are you? And so kind of due to you, Larry, um, I'm down here in, in Greenville, South Carolina now, and uh, just waiting for you to come back Crazy. to the to the fondo or yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. once once you uh, get bored with going and do those fancy climbs in Hawaii, coming and spending the the winter with it's us. us. Yeah. <laughs> I know but, I miss you guys there. But Larry, you know, you've done five giro's, five vuelta's, and I know that you said the giro is on your 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 program for this year, but to Our viewers and listeners that may not know, the Tour de France finishes in downtown Nice, which is Larry's basically adopted hometown. Is there any chance, Larry, that we can see you in in the Tour de France this year? Because I can't imagine how cool that would be, finishing the Tour de France basically at the bottom of the hill that you live on. Um, Is there a chance? Yeah. Is yeah. there a chance that we're going to s- could see you in the, in the tour de France this year?
2: I, I really hope so. Um, I, you know, I think we're going to have to wait and see how, how it goes uh, at the start of the year. And yeah, if, you know, should I do the Giro, then, you know, I, I really have to outperform to be able to go to the tour. So, so I, I mean, it's for me, it would be a dream because it, it actually literally passes the last stage passes my front door. So it literally passes right in front of my house this year. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's really, really a big dream because it's also one of the only races I have not done. Um, I've done nearly every other race. Um, and, yeah, that's definitely a big one for the bucket list. So so it's something I need to do um, before I retire. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest goals that I have. So we'll see. I had a look
1: at um, the stages, the bit of an overview, and also on a TT we just talked about. I was getting just by looking at it a little nervous seeing you guys flying down the descent on a TT bike. If there's a little bit of Mistral, Mistral is uh, for our listeners, it's a famous wind in that region, comes from the sea, I believe. Um, It, I mean, you know, when we go down a Col de S on a normal road bike, we hit easy 80 to 90 kilometers an hour. On a TT bike with a disc wheel, you gotta make it more than 100. And uh, yeah. I i already got, like, you know, the sweat pouring out of my forehead <laughs> when I just think about you guys shooting down there. Did
2: you give... You, you looked at it already a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, I do these roads, like, I mean, multiple times a week. So, um, yeah, it's definitely dangerous. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the parts is it just comes... The descent just to my house. Um, I mean, there, yeah, you're going to be hitting, like, you're going to be hitting over a hundred K an hour. And, uh, I mean, if you want to win the TT, you know, you need to be essentially in your TT position and peddling. Uh, well, I mean at a hundred, you're not going to be peddling, but, uh, I would say there are a lot of sections on this course where, yeah, you need to take a lot of risk if you really, I mean, if you're going to be, if you're going to be, you know, playing for the win, um, it's going to be really dangerous, uh, because yeah, hopefully there won't be wind, but, uh, yeah, even without wins, it's, it's, it's it's pretty extreme on a TT bike, but yeah, that's how it goes, I guess.
0: Well, you know, you're, Nice and Monaco have always been kind of that hotbed per, for pro cyclists and tourists alike. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people going to Nice, you know, the whole Côte d'Azur to watch that, those final couple stages of the Tour de France this year. Larry, you've been there for almost 13 years. What, what is your favorite training loop?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's a bit boring because it's like same one that everyone um sort of does. But for me, my favorite is like so you start so if you leave from Nice, you go um you can sort of go up through Es, or you could go up Col You go to La Turbie, um over to pay down the Col de pay um and then up the valley to Lascaren, Col de browse down Col de Braus to Sospel. So that that they'll do in the um, second to last stage of the tour. Um, that'll be the first big climb of the road stage. But then I like to go right in Sospel. You go up uh, Col de Castillon, down to Menton, over to the Madone, Col de la Madone, back home. So that that's my favorite ride. But that's also like, that's pretty standard. I would say if you asked a lot of pros here, they'd probably say the same, but but it's a really that's a really awesome loop.
0: Man, I miss those days. Those were yeah. <laughs> that was some good <laughs> riding compared to Yenzi like up there in Berlin having to gut <laughs> it out.
1: <laughs> we don't have much uh, climbing here. Um, well, once you leave the city, tons of roads to choose from, yeah. but uh, no mountains at all, not even hills. Um hey, um if we talk again in let's say 10 months from now and you look back at at your season, what would you go, this is my dream result I always wanted? What would that be? What would make your season great, fantastic, exceptional, if you can dream along a little bit?
2: I mean, I do think, yeah, to have a chance to do the Tour de France uh, would be, for me, that would be just a dream season, you know, Uh, because that would sort of complete yeah my cycling bucket list probably. Um, I, I mean, Olympics would be sweet too. But uh, I would say Tour de France uh, would be, yeah, probably number one on there for me, just just to do it. I, I don't necessarily need to do anything crazy, but uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, win a stage would also be extreme dream. But uh, yeah, just to do it would be it would be a big, yeah, big win for me, I think.
0: Larry, I, I don't know if it's hard for me to ask you this last question. Um, because it just seems like you've always been like one of the youngest guys on the team, but you know, like you're one of the <laughs> oldest guys on the team now, how much gas is left in the tank for you? Uh, how much more, many more years do you want to spend over in the European Peloton?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think like <clears throat> if things go as they have been going, I would say a few more years I'd like to do. Um, so yeah, whether that's three, three, four more years, uh. <clears throat> would probably be I, I mean as in i don't know total so maybe you know if i that's three years after this or we'll see you know i think it kind of just depends how everything goes you know life situation how you're riding you know if you're still performing things like that um but you know i i actually really enjoy uh doing it uh, i mean i enjoy the training uh you know i enjoy less you know the diet and stuff but uh but even that i don't mind that much um so i i just like yeah i kind of like going i like going to the races i like doing the training uh it's not a bad gig so yeah if i could do it for a few more years I, i'd be happy larry
1: thanks a million for being our guest tonight giving us the chance to talk about your season coming a bit of your past and also your last training camps Again, thank you very much for being our guest. It was fantastic to talk to you. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Larry for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. This show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. And please remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram,
0: threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow.
1: Larry loved the brown cycling shorts of Aji 2 r but what was your favorite cycling kit of all time? Let us know.